I'm Steve Fisher. Dr. Natasha Robinson is an ecologist at the Australian National University, focusing on threatened species, especially native mammals. She helps cute little Australian creatures survive and thrive in the face of threats, natural and man-made. And she's my guest on this episode of Life Slices. We're here with Dr. Natasha Robinson. I'm going to ask my usual opening question. Who is Dr. Natasha Robinson? Yeah, well, Natasha Robinson, Dr. Natasha Robinson is a conservation biologist from uh, Australia. So I work on threatened species, including beautiful animals such as the eastern quoll and southern brown bandicoot. And we've been reintroducing them into the wild in a park on the coast in southeastern Australia. I also work on fire ecology, so looking at the effects of fire on animals and plants in the environment, and general threatened species monitoring and management questions. Now, when I saw something on your website, the National Environmental Science Program Threatened Species Recovery Hub, which is a mouthful, shortened to NESP TSR Hub, which isn't any easier to say, actually. But what is that? Yeah, so the National Environmental Science Program Threatened Species Recovery Hub, which is absolutely a mouthful to say, which is why we shorten it, is uh, a government-funded research program, and it's been running for about six years, and it's been funding about 220-odd projects across Australia, and the projects that are run in partnerships with universities and government agencies and NGO organisations across the country, and they're designed to um, look at questions regarding threatened species conservation. So myself, for example, have been doing research on reintroducing threatened species back into the wild and also looking at questions relating to the recent bushfires that happened in Australia in 2019. So as you'd be aware from the news, I'm, I'm assuming we had some devastating bushfires here last summer or summer and a half ago now. And, uh, yeah, so a lot of our plants and animals were badly affected by that. So the government has actually funded more research into looking into the impact of that bushfire. I was first drawn to your work by an article on CNN that implied that you were bringing species back from extinction. I just want to clear this up. That's not correct, correct? (laughs) That you can't bring a species back from extinction. Well, that's not exactly what we're doing. And yes, it was, I guess, maybe a bit of a sexy title, which was maybe not entirely accurate. What we are doing is reintroducing animals back into an area that they have become locally extinct. So these are animals that used to occur in that environment, but no longer are no longer there but they still occur elsewhere in the environment. So the eastern quoll and also the southern brown bandicoot used to be really common in Butteree National Park. And Butteree is this beautiful coastal park located a few hours east of Canberra where I'm located on the coast. And both these animals used to occur quite commonly there. They still occur in the wild in other parts of Australia. And so what we've been doing is taking animals from either wild populations or captive bred sanctuaries and releasing them back into that environment to re-establish them there. How do you actually make this decision of which species to reintroduce where? That's a good question. So in terms of um, Butteree, we look at what animals used to occur in that environment and we consider the threats um, that caused them to go extinct in the first place and then look at what are the current threats 
to re-establishing them there in that environment. So, for example, what caused them to go extinct 100 years ago may not be the threat that's, that's um, preventing them from recolonizing that landscape. And so, and we also look at um, the order that we reintroduce species back into an area. So if Woodery has unfortunately lost quite a few species or and, and species are also declining, and so we may want to bolster numbers of existing species in the park. And, for example, you may, well, what, what we ideally do is, is reintroduce animals that occur at like the prey species first and get, get those numbers really well established in, 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 in high number. And then we think about introducing predator-type species later down the track so there are enough prey species that they won't be compromised if they're predated on by the, the higher-order predator. So that, that was uh, my next question. Is, how, is there a particular species or are there particular species that you would not consider reintroducing to areas? Like, it's like good riddance, glad they're gone. Oh, well, if they occurred naturally, I guess we we'd still be thinking about whether we can reintroduce them, but we might be thinking that we might have to limit how we reintroduce them. Yeah, so, for example, in, in Bouderie, we've lost a, the eastern quoll and a, another quoll called the spotted tail quoll, and you wouldn't want to introduce a, a predator back into the landscape if you have prey species that could be compromised by that predator being reintroduced. Ideally, you would ensure that the prey species are really well established and then and or existing in habitats that won't be that won't be utilized by the, the predator so that they won't be completely exhausted if, if they if that predator is then brought in. Because I guess you don't want to create another another problem by reintroducing a species back. So you need to think about yeah those threats that occur in the environment. So for example with the eastern quoll, before we reintroduced it back into the environment, we did a a really good risk assessment of what could happen and what are the threats to that quoll, to the quoll um, species being reintroduced to the park. So how do we maximise its chances of survival? What are the threats to reintroducing it back into that environment? But also because it does predate, it's a it's a small, I should describe the eastern quoll. It's a beautiful, beautiful creature. It's about, it looks like a small native cat and that used to get called a native cat by white people when they came to Australia because I guess a lot of the species that they were encountering they've never seen before, so they were thinking of what it reminded them of. And the eastern quoll is a small marsupial, which is only about a kilo in size, and it's it looks a bit like a cat because it's yeah it, it's about that sort of small cat size, and it comes in two colours, either a dark chocolate black colour or a lighter fawn colour, and its body in, is covered in white spots. And it's got a bushy tail and a little pink nose, and it's in, in terribly endearing. It's a very charismatic animal. And so that's what we're reintroducing back into the park. But these little critters, they also are small predators. And so they mainly eat invertebrates, but they can also take small birds and lizards and small mammals, for instance. And so we don't want to be compromising other animals in the park by reintroducing the quoll back if, if those animals are other animals that a prey species could be then consequently wiped out by the quoll. So, for example, the southern brown bandicoot, which we've also been reintroducing as a potential prey item, and also the eastern bristlebird, which is this beautiful ground-dwelling bird that runs along the ground. It acts more like a, a mouse than it does like a bird. It doesn't fly very much. <laughs> I saw a question online asking if quolls eat cats. A quoll is typically smaller than a cat, and it's usually the other way around. A cat would eat a quoll. And so that's actually a real problem in Australia. So cats and foxes are both introduced to Australia. They never occurred here in Australia. 
before before colonization of Australia. And so, and because Australian marsupials, Australian wildlife hasn't evolved with these types of predators, they're quite naive to that predation threat. And so they're easily um, predated on and they easily, or they don't, they don't win the fight when a fox or a, or a cat encounters a native marsupial in Australia. So we've had some devastating losses of, of animals in Australia because of these introduced predators on, on the wildlife here. And so, yeah, typically a quoll would not, would, they may eat like a kitten, like a, a kitten of a cat, but they wouldn't be able to eat a cat because a cat would be bigger than a quoll, an eastern quoll that is. Oh, some some people eat more than they can handle, so you never know. Do marsupials typically get along with each other? Ah, uh, they typically tolerate each other, I guess. Yeah, so often there's, I guess, they have like just these arrangements with each other. They occupy different spaces. Um, so a lot of animals can coexist by either eating different resources or occupying different spaces or utilising those resources at different times. So, for example, one animal might eat the same thing as another, but the first might come out during the night and eat that, that resource, and the other one might be eating that resource during the day. So they're not, there's no spa- spatial time overlap on that resource. Why has Australia developed such unique wildlife? Gosh, that is a really interesting question. I guess, well, mainly because it's been in isolation for so long, it's bound to develop all these interesting animals. But yeah, we're quite lucky with our diversity here in Australia, with how it is it is so unique in that sense. And yes, because it's been in isolation from the rest of the world. And yeah, it, it does seem quite quite unique compared to other places. And the isolation from the rest of the world, while not quite what it used to be, is what I think draws a lot of new residents in to Australia. It's like, good, we don't have to deal with the rest of the world. <laughs> So when you have made that decision to reintroduce a species, what does it take? What is the process? How do you prepare their new home for them? And how do you prepare them for the new home? Absolutely. So it's not just a case of taking an animal and moving it and and dropping it there. That's how past introductions occurred. But um, here in 2021, we have uh, all these procedures in place that we must follow. Uh, so we have to get, first of all, we, we put forward the proposal. We, we think about like what, what are we trying to achieve in that landscape? And I guess overall our aim is to um, uh, re, um, bring back the species that once occurred in that landscape. And that's a vision that is shared by the park owners who are the traditional owners of the land. That's the Rec Bay Aboriginal community. And that, that vision is shared with the um, co-managers of the park, which is Parks Australia. So Buttery National Park is a, is a jointly managed park between traditional owners and um, the Commonwealth Government. And so they have this vision of, like, we would like to um, bring back species that once occurred in that landscape. Um, how will we go about doing that? And then it's a, a question of, well, which species should come first? And so we, we, we um, discuss that. And, and as we mentioned before, which is the order, the correct order of bringing species in? And then we must seek approval from um, all our um, like different various levels of government and then seeking out where we get these individuals from. So, for example, the bandicoots, they came from the wild because there is a, a wild population of bandicoots that occurs not too far from the park, um, whereas eastern quoll, um, they, they don't occur in the wild on the mainland anymore. As we mentioned earlier, they've become extinct on the mainland, but they still occur in the wild in Tasmania and then we have a really good um, access to captive breeding populations. 
And so for, for the Eastern Quoll, we've, we've decided to go with the captive bred individuals because um, they're available and accessible, I guess. And so in terms of bringing them back into the park, you need to think about, well, what are the threats to, to the animals that we're releasing? So how do we minimise uh, mortality in the field? We want to maximise their chances of survival. And this is also a step that needs to go by uh, animal ethics approval. So they ask the questions like how are you going to look after these animals in the field? How are you going to you know, minimise mortality? Um, how will you respond to any threats and, and new information about causes of mortality and so we do all these 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 assessments and we think about so we for the eastern quoll we came up with a list of 10 threats that we thought were things we needed to deal with and they included fox predation uh, paralysis ticks so we have ticks um, which is a little parasite that um, attaches to the skin and sucks the blood and the quolls that we're introducing are have, have not been exposed to that tick before and so they potentially could be paralyzed and die from that from that tick so we think about that as a threat yeah and so there's a new, numbers of threats that we think about when reintroducing them then we try and mitigate those threats a lot of people think of australia as the place you go to to get attacked and killed by some kind of weird creature why are there so many so many uh scary dangerous creatures there <laughs> i do not know but they don't seem so scary or dangerous when you live here i guess you, you know it's a danger that we're familiar with and yeah, it, I guess if you know if you know it's dangerous, you don't go out and provoke it. You leave it alone. So we have lots of snakes and spiders, and I just mentioned ticks. I mean, you can't really avoid a tick in the bush. If you just brush up against vegetation, you're, you're very likely to get a tick. But you just have to, you know, check yourself later on and remove the ticks. <laughs> you also have these wonderful creatures that are so adorable, things like koalas, that can actually rip your face off, can't they? Well, if you got really in the face of a koala, they it, it might do that, but um, it's not normally eating humans. They normally eat eucalypt leaves. They're usually quite harmless. And if, if you leave them alone, they will leave you alone. <laughs> yes, and if you ate eucalyptus leaves all day, you'd be pretty calmed. Exactly. The, what you mentioned the uh, the ethics committee, what panel, whatever it's called. Is this a bureaucratic committee or a scientific community? It's a scientific committee. So I guess it's it's one of the conditions of the release of animals into the park is that we get um, research animal ethics approval. And so myself as a researcher on the project, I take care of that um, side of the project. And so it involves putting forward um, a application to the to the ethics committee about what we're doing, why we're doing doing this. How will we um, use the research um, and what, as I mentioned before, like what are the risks and how we mitigate those risks? And you also mentioned that the uh, the Aboriginal people own the parks, correct? That's correct. Are they involved in your actual work of bringing these species back or do they just have to say, yeah, go ahead, bring them in? Uh, um, yes, the local people, the local um, Indigenous people, the Rec Bay Aboriginal community are involved with our project. So as I mentioned earlier, they co-manage the park and so they're involved in all decision makings. They, they need to approve um, and a part of that decision making in any of these big decisions and, and how the park is managed. So there is like a management plan and they, they approve all these big decisions such as reintroducing species. So that's at a high level in terms of the governance of the park, but they're also involved on a day-to-day -day, day level because the parks people um, who work work there, a lot of them actually are from the local community. 
So they're Rec Bay locals and they work as rangers in the park and so they actually help with the program in terms of implementing the program. And then our research project has also employed over the years a local person that comes out and helps with us to do the research and that's you know, helping us to monitor the animals and in, in, that, in that process we teach that local person how to do all the monitoring so we teach them how to radio track animals, how to um, monitor animals via camera traps, how, how to cage trap, and all the types of monitoring work that we then collect data to, to write the research papers. So they get a lot of skills and, and employment from the program. Once you have reintroduced a species to an area, how do you follow up? Uh, is, is it something you keep an eye on for a period of time to make sure they're doing well, or do you just kind of let them do their thing? Yeah, so we have different levels of monitoring. So when we first release an animal, we monitor them very, very closely, very intensely, because when you first release an animal into the environment, that's when it's most vulnerable. It's You're taking an animal from a very comfortable, familiar place and putting them into a very new, unfamiliar place. And in the case of a wild-to-wild translocation, they already have an ability to live in the wild, and so maybe it's not such a, uh, a drastic move. But for the quolls that are coming from captive bred sanctuaries and being released into the wild, they are very, very naive. Um, you know, they've been raised and, and kept in, in shelter and fed daily and not exposed to all the threats that occur in, in a natural environment. And they've also not been exposed to many threats such as um, foxes or cars in the environment. So, you know, they, they'll wander up to the road and not realise that a car could run them over and kill them. In the first few weeks following a translocation is when most animals are vulnerable to these threats in the environment. And so that's when it's really important for us to know what's happening to them. What are they most vulnerable to? So, for example, if roads um, are a real threat, um, if we um, are monitoring their movements and seeing that quolls are moving towards areas of of many roads or um, very busy roads, we can actually capture animals and move them away to move them out of that danger. Or if we see other threats in the environment, we're able to to monitor those threats and, and, and I guess, minimise that threat actually happening. And when if, if we if we actually do end up losing an animal, we then gain that knowledge about, like, what are these actual threats in the environment so that for future translocations we can make modifications. So we monitor them really intensely for the first um, several weeks, as, as long as we can, really. And then... Over time, we'll um, scale back that intensive monitoring and we'll put out camera traps, for example, so we can monitor them more passively in the environment. We'll conduct regular cage trapping, so we, we catch them um, at several um, intervals after the release date to monitor their health and weights and then subsequently their breeding. Because often when we release an animal into the environment, often they will um, lose weight when they're first released because they're trying to find food in that environment. But then we're looking for when that weight will then um, bounce back up to where they were before and then subsequently keep growing and getting fatter. And then later on, we, we monitor for the, the breeding, as I mentioned, to see how successful they are and, and whether their offspring are surviving in the park. How do you judge a success? What is considered a success when you've relocated a species? Yeah, so ultimately, the ultimate, um, what we're aiming for is to have that species reestablished in the park and, and is an as a self-sustaining population. So enough individuals in the park that are breeding and maintaining good numbers in the park and maintaining good genetic diversity. Uh, but 
We also monitor success in um, stages as well because that is a long-term vision that may take 10, 20 years to, to know for sure that they are actually self-sustaining. So in the meantime, we like to look at indicators if, if we're on track to meet that long-term term goal. So for instance, in the first year, we look at things um, like did, did the animals, did enough of the population that we released survive and did they breed? And then in subsequent years, we look at well, are there is there evidence of individuals that have bred and been born at the park and so uh, you know is the next generation subsequent generations you know growing up and and establishing in the park it's not too different from humans because i know we we have a problem in the u.s is our birth rate has gone down so it's like the government is uh uh-oh you know we're right we talking about the numbers we didn't talk about how many how do you decide how many to bring over to begin with yes and so um the more individuals you release the more likely that there are going to be some individuals that will survive and persist in the landscape. So generally, the more that you can release, the better. But going back to the animal ethics question that we talked about earlier, animal ethics and also um, the, you know, the research and reintroduction team don't want to be compromising animals for the sake of just having that end success game. We don't, we don't want individuals to die. So we're trying to maximise our, our end success, but also minimise the number of animals that potentially might die in that process. And so we tend to do a pilot program first. We release a smaller number initially and then watch, monitor really closely, see what those threats are, and then um, adapt so that the the subsequent um, relocations have more numbers in that. So, for example, with the eastern quoll translocation, we released 20 in the first year and we monitored those 20 individuals really, really closely. And so then we made modifications to the program so that the following year we actually released twice as not, twice as many quolls and we had a, a higher survival rate that way. What's been your most successful relocation to date? I would say the Southern Brown Bandicoots. Uh, so we at, at the park they've had three species that have reintroduced: long-nosed potteroo, Southern Brown Bandicoot, and Eastern quoll. First, let let me let me ask what exactly is a bandicoot? Because the only way I know bandicoots are from a video game called Crash Bandicoot, <laughs> and I don't I never none, knew what that meant. Tell you the truth, that looks nothing like a bandicoot in my in my book. Anyway, a bandicoot is actually about the same same weight as a quoll, but they're more compact and dense. So they're like a I, I guess like a really large rodent, but they're not a rodent. They're a marsupial. They're like quoll. They have a pouch. Um, and they're about a kilo in size. Um, they're about the size of a small rabbit, I guess. And, and they're compact, as I mentioned. They've got a, a long snout and, and they run along the ground and they dig holes in the ground with their snout and leave like these um, conical depressions in the ground where they've basically stuck their snout into the ground digging for truffles. So they're very, very cute animal. Um, nothing like a rat, really, but they're just, they're like compact, I guess. But very, very cute animals. They often can be called a bandicoot instead of a bandicoot. <laughs> bandicoot. Like and what was, there was another one you mentioned that was. Yeah, long-nosed potteroo. So it's a mac. I mean, these sound like cartoon characters. Come on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess if you're not familiar with them, they are pretty cartoon-like. They're crazy. Like when you think about these hopping animals, they're, they're, they're very cute. So they're, they're a little macropod that hops around. They're similar in size to a bandicoot as well. They're all these, and this is actually important, actually. The reason these animals are being reintroduced back into the park is because they are that that weight range of about one kilo in size, which is the perfect size for a cat or a fox to munch. 
which is why these animals have been compromised and they've um, been um, declining or going extinct in, in certain parts of the, of the country because cats and foxes think they're a very tasty meal. They're very, you know, easy, easy size to, to um, hunt. And so we've lost a lot of animals in that, what we say is a critical weight range because it's just the right size for a, a fox or a cat. I know foxes are, are wild. They're not exactly uh, domesticated, but cats are domesticated. And people, I always say people should keep their cats indoors, not let them run around free outside because they become prey and they prey on other creatures that we need in our environment. Absolutely. And that's something that we in Australia, particularly who have who work in the environment and understand that relationship, absolutely advocate that you know cats should be kept indoors. For those reasons that you mentioned, they also spread disease, so they can actually impact on humans too. That you know, with toxoplasmosis, that's a real threat to people, particularly pregnant ladies. So there are other reasons why you should keep cats indoors for the cat health, for the health of humans, and also for you know the well-being of other animals in the environment that could be eaten by a cat. How can the average person participate in helping to save the planet's wildlife? It's not just Australia; it's all over the world where our indigenous species are being threatened. Climate change is one thing, but there are man-made risks that we can help to stop. Absolutely. So as an individual, there's many things that you can do. Um, Here in Australia, um, I would say, you know, advocating um, to your local politician and letting them know that, you know, you care about the environment and and what are they doing, what, what are the policies that they're implementing to make sure that they're taking care of the environment. So, for example, we don't have much money going towards threatened species uh, research and management. And so, you know, advocating that we need more money to look after the environment would be a good thing and and that will then flow on to um, those policies changing. And I I also think it's important to have conversations with people about, um, you know, letting other people know because basically you're you're, you're spreading the word that, you know, the environment matters and you care about the environment and other other people also care about the environment, but they're probably not aware of the different threats that are existing in the environment, such as we're talking about the cats earlier. So if you can, you know, let your, your neighbour know when you see their cat wandering out in the street, you know, do, do you know that your cat may be compromising wildlife out here and perhaps you might want to think about keeping it indoors, particularly at night time when they're out potentially getting up to mischief. Yes, or or somebody else is eating eating them for dinner. That's uh, not a good thing. I know in my cats, on the rare occasion where they're near an open door, they usually just look up at me like, I'm not going out there. What's wrong with you? <laughs> it's air conditioned in here. I'm not going out. <laughs> that's, that's right. This is very pleasant. I get food when I want it. Why, why should I worry about what's going on out there? A cat should meet a qual and, and, and realize that, like, you know, when, when you're being kept in a, in a safe, you know, sanctuary, like, you know, when you're fed and watered and all that, like, why would you want to leave? You know, it's a very comfortable. Very good. Well, send send a call to me and I'll take care of it for a while and see how my cats react. <laughs> They're afraid of the dog and the dog is afraid of them. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. What else would you like listeners to know about you or your work or the ecosystem that I haven't asked? Well, I would just like to say Australia is full of amazing, beautiful creatures and I'm really, really ha- happy that I get to work in a place that's so diverse with such unique animals and hopefully um, helping to improve their existence here in Australia into the future so that 
when you can come back to Australia, when we welcome you back after all this COVID um, period, you can come see, see the animals for yourself. But at a distance. At a distance, yes. No, no pain of feeding the wildlife. Natasha, I really appreciate your doing this. Thank you so much. And best of luck with all your future reintroductions. Maybe I'll get down there someday and you can introduce me to the environment. That'd be lovely. (laughs) Thank you very much, Steve. If you enjoyed this program, please subscribe and like us on social media and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beat Dick Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesleyan Studios. 